capitalistic, but we need some form of organization. And those things started emerging in some of the Occupy encampments, definitely, where people, yeah, people are smart and creative and can run things. Reading history, reclaiming our history, and looking into what actually happened, not, um, you know, tainted by the interpretations of the capitalist class, you know, as a fundamental antagonism toward what happened, but also to see that these are not failures. Back to democracy, how? Pick up your dicks and fuck some chicks, cause... Alright, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, I was just experimenting with a new format here. This might be the last podcast that I do. Uh, <laughs> so I was trying to, you know, make it edgy, switch formats, keep the keep the network happy, the network execs at crab diving, or down my, down my throat, trying to... Uh, no, they're not. That's I'm blind. I just, um, um, I don't know how much gas I have left in the tank for this podcast, to be honest. And also, it's just kind of hard to get guests who want to come and publicly speak about overthrowing capitalism. You know, it's kind of a short, short pool. Not a, lot, not a long list that you get to pick from in terms of guests. And uh, also, I'm lazy. Very lazy. And that's about it so well welcome back to the podcast uh sorry about that uh, dicks and chicks thing you, you don't have to pick up your dick and fuck, fuck chicks unless you want to and uh they're willing so all right <sighs> gotta fill some time <laughs> you know uh, some of you may be surprised to uh hear this but i actually did not go to uh, broadcast school uh I just learned how to become a brilliant podcast host all on my own. I suppose if you if you went to broadcast school, they'd probably tell you, "Hey, uh, don't don't say uh uh don't do that. You got to cut out all those ums, those unnecessary ahs and ums." But uh, what they don't tell you in broadcast school is those ahs and ums fill some much needed time when you gotta you gotta kill an hour. How are you gonna do it? I can only talk about communism so much. The rest is just ahs and ums taking up space. All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I do appreciate people have listened. I don't know how many people actually this podcast actually reaches, but every now and then I get a few messages about the podcast. People seem to like it. I've gotten compliments and not so much hate mail, so that's pretty good, right? That's a victory. Uh, today's guest, we continue our conversation with... Uh, author and cartoonist and activist and organizer for revolution stephanie mcmillan we get more uh into you know actually organizing what what is it what do we do uh, we get into uh, sort of concepts of uh feminism and proletarian feminism and the difference between the two oh, lots of good stuff coming up uh but for now i gotta kill some time because i didn't get any street interviews this week i know how much you guys all love me making an ass of myself walking around the streets of Los Angeles trying to talk to people. But you know what? It's mostly been a very good experience. I'm surprised that as many people talk to me as do. Uh, but it's just very time-consuming. I spend some time uh, 
few hours on my weekend uh, just walking around and asking uh, people with my... By the way, I'm using a Zoom to record this, and it looks a lot like a taser, so I don't know. It's uh, Nobody wants to talk to a disheveled kid uh, holding a... T- <laughs> Holding a taser, please speak into this taser. And then I'm asking politically charged questions. Uh, you know, in my presentation isn't that that great. So well, I don't know. I don't know what the future of this podcast is. I'll see. I might. Uh, I'm going home. Going back to the mean streets of Peabody, Massachusetts, a wonderful suburban town. Uh, next week, I might sit down, uh, have a have a discussion with some old friends, and uh, talk some shop. Maybe a couple more episodes out of that. Maybe this is the last one. I don't know. You know, I get I'll go home and uh, it'll be like a Bruce Springsteen song. I'll just talk about suburbia and urban decay, and I'll really objectify the working class uh, and commodify them in in lyric form, and uh, I'll make millions of dollars off it. Fuck Bruce Springsteen is what I'm saying. You don't know, just get to objectify the working class, make them into just, uh, oh, they're working a factory job, and now I'm singing about it, you poor fucking slob. Give me a paycheck. I actually really like Bruce Springsteen. I'm a big fan. By the way, I saw him in concert. He was great. Uh, I wish he played Atlantic City, but he didn't. But I, I do think that's something about his songs. Just, you know, you sing about the working class, but then there are always like, these defeated subjects. Where are the uplifting working class songs, you know? revolutionary working class songs like bruce springsteen singing a song about the the union workers like not taking any shit and they're like uh you know hey this union's not working out we could throw out these old union bosses and we're just gonna start a new fucking union international union be wobblies sing about the wobblies bruce springsteen (laughs) sing about them organizing into an armed insurrectionary movement taking that factory seizing the means of production Am I right, everybody? All right. Yeah, this was about five minutes of a killer, killer filler right here. You know what I was thinking about? I've been reading it as I do, uh, just from a logical standpoint about capitalism. Uh, if we if we just kind of remove it, or I guess it's not removing it, but just think about it differently. Like uh, from a logical standpoint, I think we can all agree. Like uh, you can't take a, an object, right? And then split it into parts. And then when you recombine those parts, get more than the original thing. Now, how does that relate to capitalism? Well, basically, all capitalism is, is you take a sum, you take capital, right? The money, uh, productive capital, uh, or capital becomes productive capital when it gets invested into labor and means of production, the materials, the factory, Uh, the tools to create the thing that you're creating. Uh, So basically, you take a sum of capital, you break it down into the wages to pay the labor, and then you break it down into its second part into the means of production in order to create the commodity, and that two parts of the one capital combine together to form a commodity, yet somehow the thing that is created is of greater value than the original sum. Now, does that make any sense? Just from a logical standpoint, that doesn't make any sense. How can you get a greater value out of a sum when you just com- you break it into parts and combine it? This is why this is one of the major contradictions behind capital. It does like it doesn't make sense. I mean, 
realistically what's happening is the uh, labor is being shortchanged and they're working for free. Uh, and the capitalist is extracting a surplus off of that. But there's only so long that that circuit can run before it, it short circuits. And that's what happens every time. Every time there's a crash, it's like, oops, something short circuited. Uh, and I've been trying to investigate more, uh, apply Marxist principles to the modern economy, trying to figure out this shit for myself. But I'm also having, uh, I'm trying to look at industrial output, uh, how much, how many things are created. Uh, since capital now exists a lot and just like, it's a mystical form. It's just like a, uh, you know, it's in a credit form where it's not even a real, it's not even real dollars. It's just a, an advanced sum that's been conjured into existence from where? Nothing. A, a banking institution? Doesn't add up. <laughs> Is everybody with me? All right. I've just been thinking about this myself, you know, in my own personal investigation. Uh, I'm sure there's been lots of stuff written about it, but I need a good primer on how the modern economy works. I've just been reading about... Uh, mostly my study has begun with the... Uh, birth of the industrial industrial age and industrial capital, but we've since moved into uh, finance capital, and that's a whole another bag of dicks. <laughs> Sorry, I gotta stop with the dick talk, or do I? Uh, that might boost the ratings. They said get a little edgier, talk about dicks. If you can relate capital to dicks, then that's uh, you know it opens up listenership to a whole new market. Ex- extending the market we gotta because there's only so much there's only so many communists and anarchists i could reach with this podcast and by the laws of capital uh i it's i, I need to expand markets it, it's got to go beyond communists and anarchists people who are already on board we got to expand it to capitalist turf and we have to turn them over to win converts we're winning converts here but not in a religious sense in a material sense, in a historical materialist sense, we are winning converts through reason and thinking, you know, and arguing. We gotta argue. We gotta make people see the flaws of capital, how capital relates to the state, how we're dominated by the state, and how the capital dominates the state. Oh boy. So we're picking up with our conversation with Stephanie McMillan today, and we're going to talk about all those good things. We talk about uh, the parliamentary politics. We get more into Bernie Sanders, more into the Syriza, Podemos, uh, the sort of leftist, I did air quotes around leftist, uh, parties that have popped up in um, some of the European countries, Spain, Greece, um, and why those movements or why those political parties were doomed to fail from the beginning, uh, why you can't elect socialism bernie sanders major flaw first of all he's not a socialist he's a democratic socialist capitalist which doesn't make any goddamn fucking sense you can't be those things uh but yeah you can't elect socialism it's not going to happen and as we see with Syriza, but they just end up uh quivering and acquiescing to uh the imf and the european central bank on their demands and imposing more harsh sanctions upon their populations in an anti-democratic way, too. Uh, some of this stuff, uh, the original, I recorded this back in uh, July with Stephanie, so this is back when uh, Syriza was running into these problems, so we were talking about uh, we we're talking about that. So it's, uh, this shit already went down. It's kind of old news now, but you get to hear about it again. Maybe you hadn't heard about it in the first place. So, all right, did I fill enough time? Filling time. 
that's uh, all I'm good for. Isn't really that what everybody is good for? Just filling time on this earth until we die. We die in struggle. Okay, anyway, that was depressing. We're going to kick it back over to my interview with Stephanie McMillan. Oh, I cleaned up the audio on this one, so it's a little bit better, more listenable than last time, except for my dumb voice. My, my dumb voice is always unlistenable. So you're welcome. Here we go. I think we're in a very dangerous place right now because yeah. we don't have a very developed movement. You know, that's very apparent. Yeah. Um, and we're... The left has been very disorganized and in disarray and the working class itself a lot of them are under the ideological domination of capital so they really don't even see their interests or even understand that they are a class um so and global warming seems to be accelerating and so it's kind of a race against time you know are we going to be able to do this before we all fry (laughs) i don't know yeah Uh, i i kind of feel pessimistic sometimes in a way like that maybe you know the chances are not good but on the other hand we really have no other option so we really have to pulling all of our energies together um to make it happen to organize to get out there to try and just talk to people you know get get people involved as much as possible because otherwise our fate will be be very grim yeah, and I'm in uh, I'm in Southern California, and uh, there's you wouldn't know it by uh, looking at people or people getting coffee. And I get coffee, like I I probably buy coffee more than I should, uh, but people watering their lawns. We don't have any water here, and there, uh, as yeah. far as I know, there's no real plans of getting water to uh, L.A. I mean, there are like some big like boondoggle, I'm sure, like. Uh, uh, what's it called contracts between like the again private industry is going to come in and be like oh we can build you a reservoir or we can dig you an irrigation ditch and divert a river but it's like that they're just going to suck money out of the state uh and then maybe get us water but like yeah we keep like in a, in a, for example like um for maybe for anybody listening in the in california who uh understands that our state is running out of water uh it, within a capitalist society like we have like uh, again like Poland Springs or, or Nestle was bottling water here, and they continue to bottle water uh, in California, and because they're selling it for profit elsewhere, they're literally taking our water and shipping it out uh, when we need it so much. And like you know, there's still breweries that are using a ton of water, and coffee shops using a ton of water under a uh, different system where there's no financial incentive to be doing this or mass producing these things, we would be conserving more water because that's just the logical, natural thing to be doing in a drought. There would be no incentive to take these objects and make them commodities and then sell them for profit. So it's, I think like maybe the environmental movement might be the best way to get people to understand this. Um, that these like plundering the earth to turn things into commodities for profit has cost us a huge, huge deal, and uh, hopefully we can fight. Uh, you know all the all the bad like even like even some liberal people like I don't think nobody really is going to grasp it though until something really really bad happens, um, and I don't think that's necessarily pessimistic either. I think I think there's a fine line to walk between uh, being pessimist like being like wow nothing's ever going to change. 
um, and or and just seeing the reality of like how hard it is to make things change. Um, which is why I like uh, you recently came out with um, you kickstarted a um, calendar for uh, revolutionary proletariat. Yeah. And I, I saw that. So it's basically like a, a page a day calendar with uh, affirmations. Yeah, it's 365 um, affirmations for revolutionary proletarian militants. And the reason I did it was because of this, as we were talking about before, the ideological domination that people are under, that um, even if we do become politicized, we um, a lot of people feel like there's really no hope or that mm. they can't do anything. They don't feel confident. They don't feel like they can handle it. And this was intended to try to strengthen people um, emotionally and politically and ideologically to try to, you know, firm us up a bit, you know, that we're, we may feel isolated and alone wherever we are, but we're part of a long process of revolutionary transformation that has involved people all over the world and throughout history. And we're connected to all of them and we can learn from them and feel that we're part of this, you know, movement towards something different and that it's worthwhile and and that it is um worth sacrificing for and working hard for and going through difficulties for and that but that it's not going to be easy and um but it's necessary yeah and uh i was um i think i think it's great and uh, i'm looking forward to getting mine um by the way (laughs) uh (laughs) Yeah, and I think uh, also like um, I also got into a, a, when you say this is this is part of a, a, a tradition in uh, you know there were the Marxist revolutions or revolutionaries of uh, like the 20th century, obviously the Russian Revolution, and then the, the Chinese Revolution, the revolutions in uh, Cuba and uh, in South America, um, and I think like uh, we're also battling again like a lot of misinformation about those revolutions and like maybe those because I think when people in the public consciousness right now all people know about communism is sort of what happened to those uh, attempts at socialism and attempts at getting to communism. It's like there nobody really achieved communism. I mean, there were attempts at it, and we I think we tend to process it as a, or. Uh, the media, at least, and our current elite have tried to really perpetrate this idea, and it's been very successful that, hey, communism doesn't work. Like, when I talk about this stuff with my mom, yeah. like, she thinks I'm nuts, uh, and her her only response is like, I'm telling you, you know, she grew up during the Cold War, which I don't think ever ended, but um, <laughs> she has that, you know, fear of communism. She's like, it just doesn't work. Look what happened. It never works. It's like, but... What do you mean by it doesn't work? And also, like, how explain how capitalism is working so great for everyone right now. Uh, but, yeah, like, this isn't, like, a, it's not an easy thing. And I think, hopefully, history will end up going down as, like, these early attempts in the 20th century at uh, overthrowing capitalism and establishing a sort of communist state or uh, just communism, um, those were the first attempts. But, like, it's important to learn from what went wrong with those uh, to build an actual movement. because, And I think, too, like, people are confusing or may confuse, like, communism with fascism, uh, which are completely uh-huh. opposite uh, because uh-huh. there's, a, you know, the big uh, powers of be have made out, like, um, you know, Mao to be, like, uh, Hitler. And uh, basically they just make everybody they don't like Hitler. 
uh, <laughs> it's like the right. go-to, go-to yeah. move of the elite. Be like, ah, they're fascists. They're, they're just like Hitler. And it's like, that's not really the case. Um, so we have to combat that and uh, make people understand that this is just, a, that, those were steps. Those were stepping stones. And the next thing to come will be bigger than that. Uh, and it has to be bigger than that. Yeah, I completely agree with you. We need to be reading history, reclaiming our history, and looking into what actually happened, not, um, you know, tainted by the interpretations of the capitalist class who, you know, has a fundamental antagonism toward what happened, but also to see that these are not failures. They are um, setbacks, you know. They're, the working class was not... Um, they didn't fail, they were actually defeated by a, a, a line, a political line that brought capitalism back to those countries. Yeah. You know, China may call itself communist, but it is a capitalist country. Yeah. And the reason that both of those, uh, Russia and China, um, reverted back to capitalism was because the working class did not have full control over the revolutionary process. Mm-hmm. It was actually a layer of um, the petty bourgeoisie in Russia, they called themselves the intelligentsia, and they um, talked about, well, they basically ran things. They were like the administrators, and they became a new layer of the bureaucratic bourgeoisie that used the state to accumulate capital. And that reversed the revolutionary struggle. And in China, Mao looked at that and tried to counter that, you know, said that was a mistake. We can't do that this time. But he still had to, because of the way Chinese society was, rely very heavily on the peasantry rather than on the working class. Because mm-hmm. um, the working class was very small. And so that brought its own difficulties. And you had a lot of people in the Communist Party itself who were from the petty bourgeoisie. And they ended up bringing capitalism back. You know, and the, the working class line was defeated. Yep. Um, but and, yeah, like mm-hmm. you said, it's a first steps. You know, that's, it's like criticizing a baby for trying to walk and then falling down a couple of times. Right. I mean, it's a process. It's a long historical process that may take generations and over and over again, fighting and, and losing and fighting and losing and finally, you know, gaining some mastery over it and some, you know, competence mm. at, at running society um, in a different way. Yeah. And but that- it will take time. And the like, the thing is too that the ideals of communism, and whether you know ideals can ever fully be reached, but uh, the ideals behind it are just like are good. Like it's fairness. It's it's for uh, an equal society where people are treated equally, where nobody is um, forced. Like I think there's a lot of things, especially because of what happened in China, um, and people don't really understand that China is is a capitalist country. There's a communist party but they're not communists um they're just right. communists in name only um they kind of see it as like uh is it like a fort like forced labor camps or like you know gulags in in, in siberia and they kind of see it as forced labor but like actual communism the ideal communism is everybody participating uh how they want to participate in, within the system and um you know it's like right. people predict in the, the you know the the saying of uh from each uh, uh, according to his uh, to each according to his uh, needs from each according to his uh, whatever it is means uh, so your ability yeah so like it would be a system where you work in what you would like to produce um, 
or and according to what society's needs are rather than what capitalism is doing is overproduction just it has to keep making things to sell the society doesn't need a new a version of the iPhone every year that's completely right. counter to what we need like the, for the iPhone 5 is pretty much the same as the iPhone 6 they're just a little bit bigger <laughs> like there's no point in that and there's a false i think belief that capitalism is producing the most effectively and I think it, it is producing the most effectively of, of making a lot of junk that you don't need. It's doing that really good. But it's not like efficient in the sense that uh, is this what we really need for our, our, our means of survival? And that's really all communism is. is we're, not, we're taking away this, this idea of overproduction and creating beyond what we even need. Um, and it, where everybody just kind of... And I, I, Everyone like the common thing that I run up against when I'm uh, trying to argue this stuff with my friends is they're like, "Well, what if somebody doesn't want to do it? Like, who's going to take out the trash? Who's going to do these jobs that, so to speak, nobody wants?" And it's like, "Well, how does anybody do anything? Like, if you really don't want to take out the trash, nobody's going to put a gun to your head and take out the trash. But like, if you're living in a society, like for example, before like uh, what we call like modern civilization or whatever you want to call it." Uh, before the state, maybe, um, before the concept of the state, it's like people did a pretty remarkable job of surviving like 150,000 years, you know? Like we are over like 200,000 years old as a species. The concept of the state is so new. Uh, it's very new to the human beings. So how do those people survive? Yeah. How do they do it? They, 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 nobody was forcing them to do anything. You kind of, like if you're operating communally, it's just sort of, Assume that hey, it's your turn to take out the trash. Take out the trash. Like, and if you don't do that, uh, eventually people will start snubbing you. You know, it's just sort of like <laughs> the social relations of it is like, uh, if you grow up in a society where the priorities aren't making money and uh, whoever's got the biggest bank account, but the priorities of your society are then uh, working with each other and for each other and for the betterment of society, then it's just sort of becomes natural like in the way that our society is natural you know yeah i mean or natural what i mean by our society is natural. how we naturally just sort of operate or think about it yeah how we've been conditioned Mm -hmm. um i think we did evolve as a species as uh you know we evolved in collective bands so we have that in our i don't like to say human nature but i mean if we do have one it's collective And you can see that whenever the state is not present, like in a disaster or something like that, people, they want to help each other. They feel good about helping each other. They always rush to each other's aid. And it's usually the state that breaks that up and says, no, it's our job. You know, don't congregate here. Yeah. Um, But I I think you're right. People will um, want to uh, participate fully in a society like that. You know, and and if somebody doesn't, then usually social pressure will, you know, either make like them feel otherwise. <laughs> yeah, make them feel like they should be doing it, or you know what, like I th- I think also capitalism has been great at perpetuating a myth that most people are lazy. Like I do no. not believe that. I don't believe people are lazy. I believe we're in a system where uh, large numbers of people are going to be left out of the economy. And then people are going to be given the appearance of laziness. And or also, like, if you slack off at a job that you don't want to do because you're forced to do it for economics, I don't see that 
as laziness. So I think that's a huge myth. And like people are not lazy. Uh-huh. If you give them, uh, if or if they are able to take um, positions where they feel empowered, like I believe we'll we'll see that like those late so-called lazy people are actually outliers of society. That most people will want to be participating in it, and most people will want to be operating communally. And that the, the number uh-huh. of like so-called lazy people, like that's just it's, it's, it's inflated by the economic system, and it's it's not real. It's not a reality. Uh, exactly. If people are um, doing things voluntarily, then people can be very creative, and they mm-hmm. like to do stuff. Yeah. Um, so I totally agree. And I think that was, I mean, uh, for all of like Occupy, I think Occupy. I did my last episode. Um, that hasn't come out yet, uh, <laughs> was I interviewed a guy who was very active in, in Occupy, and we were just talking about the social structure of it for a while. Um, and I think, like, that's one of the great things of Occupy. Like, I do think, you know, obviously, like, you know, we talked about how, uh, like, how are you going to, you know, they had the goal of, like, hey, let's let's break up these banks, rein in these banks. They're, they were scamming the people. They made a bunch of bad mortgages. They crashed the whole global economy. Let's. Mm-hmm. It's time to stop that. But I mean, ultimately, gathering in public and just demand, like yelling, it's not going to really do anything because they just sent the state police to break it up. And uh, right. but one of the good things about it, I think, is it did show how people can operate without a state um, because it was it was anarchic, but uh, people formed their own like direct democracy. Um, so they had like, they would vote on issues and vote on things. And it was, and this was all formed spontaneously, uh, spontaneously. Like this wasn't really planned. It was just, people came together and after like a few weeks, months in a park sort of formed their own way of surviving. They set up like bathrooms, they set up like libraries, they set up all these like functions that you find in like a little city. They, they set them all up in like Zuccotti and, and other parks or, uh, where they were holding those protests and I think that's actually a great, um, a great thing that does, never gets talked about. Obviously, it doesn't get addressed in like the media, and they try and not talk about Occupy as much as possible, or talk about it in a negative sense. Um, so I think in that yeah. way that it was really it was kind of a uh, one of the good takeaways from it. I agree, and it shows how organization is really necessary. And I mean, I would almost say that that's a a state, a new kind of state in mm-hmm. an embryo that's actually run by the masses right. um, instead of having it be a capitalist state. You know, we need to smash the capitalist state, but we need some form of organization. And those things started emerging in some of the Occupy encampments, definitely, mm-hmm. where people, yeah, people are smart and creative and can run things. And um, we just need practice. And we need the we need to be left alone to do it. <laughs> exactly, and we need, uh, we need the non presence of the capitalist state. So we have to get rid of that first. Yes, um, and uh, one other thing: um, recently, within the last couple of weeks, the the Syriza government and in uh, Greece sort of collapsed and gave in to uh, the IMF and the European Central Bank and European Union. Um, do you like? I mean, I've been reading a lot. There were a lot of theories about this, and um, do you think that was a uh, obviously the the Syriza government? They weren't really Marxists or anything. They kind of had the language. This is the same thing as like these progressive movements form, sort of like Bernie Sanders uh, with his language, uh, sort of this like populist message that they're going to uh, set things straight. 
But then in the end, they have to end up conceding. Um, so, uh, do you think? Do, what do you see from Syriza? Do you think that's going to maybe further radicalize people, or do you think that will uh, serve to like delegitimize the left even more? Well, I think it also it it points to the necessity of working class leadership mm-hmm. more starkly than ever because the working class was not in control of that movement. Mm-hmm. It was the petty bourgeoisie yet again, and they proved again that they are willing to compromise with capital and sell out the masses. So really the only alternative is a movement that's led by the working class. And um, everything else is going to lead right back into the same old dead ends. Absolutely. So (laughs) how do we get it going? It just confirms that. (laughs) It really does. And the media will try and spin it otherwise. So then there's been, uh, you know, some people have talked about a a fear of like a conservative or like a fascist backlash against it. And, uh, you know... um, I don't know. So that's the danger of yeah. populism. Populism yeah. is, um, you know, for those who don't really know what it is, I think it's it's a concept unfamiliar to most people, but it, it erases the class antagonism between labor and capital. It's basically mm. saying that um, we're all working class or the pe- they talk about the people rather than um, working class. And so they don't... Um, put at the center of their strategy a working class led revolution it's more like well we're just all going to rise up somehow and take power but usually the petty bourgeoisie will end up in control because they are a class that um, is more numerous and more active usually at the beginning of a movement Mm. so um, populist can quickly transition, even if it's like leftist populism with red flags and talking about the people and all that, it can very quickly transition into a right form of populism and become fascist. Yeah, and that's a scary thing, and that's where political education has to come in. Uh, And this is something I always... uh, uh, I would like to talk to some people from the the Black Lives uh, Matter movement, and I feel, as a white dude, I always feel like I, I don't know how I can or how to really talk about that movement because obviously, I think we probably both agree with you know their uh, the essence of it. Obviously, um, black people are, are being slaughtered by the police, and that's unbelievably disgusting uh, and uh, an atrocity and uh, a horrible horrible crimes but um yeah it's just uh, with those kinds of movements like those broader based movements like i want that movement to succeed um but i also don't know i maybe i just don't know enough about it but i don't know um you know what is there or like it's hard to talk about the race divide and the class divide because i want them to also like i would like to hear like the um uh, like class be addressed within that movement and so far with the stuff that I've read, I haven't really, you know, it's not like class isn't at the forefront. It's like race is at the forefront. And they're both very important things um, mm-hmm. to talk about. But, like, I feel like you're setting your movement up to fail if you're not uh, addressing class or if, you're not, if class isn't at, at at the center of it. Because ultimately it is like you have the, the police are uh agents of the state and the state is a capitalist state and, and they are really in essence just protecting private property um and keeping uh, the lower class and the working class like in line that's their objective that's their unstated uh sort of goal yeah 
Um, and I was yeah, I think racism is a way to keep the working class divided, and, and it, mm-hmm. it protects capitalist interests. And I feel like too, like when t- I was trying to talk about this with like progressive friends, and um, you know, I was told like it's like, well, you know, you're like, and it was specifically talking about in the form of like, I was like, well, I don't really see anything really changing. Like, you'll get piecemeal legislation maybe at some point. But I don't really see, like, the major, like, you might get body cams on cops or you might get some kind of judicial review uh, eventually, like, over any kind of police-related murder, which is better than what we have now. But it's not really going to solve the problem of, like, racism is going to be too hard to solve just with any one thing. But um, the state, the, the, the capitalist class, the ruling class still controls, like, the courts. They still control, like, the police are still there. Like, it's their armed guard like unless you unless you disband them completely i don't like i just don't see what's going to happen and then i always get uh, told like well and i bring it up in the context of revolution like being like well nothing short of like a pretty much full-on revolution to change these social relations are going to make a big enough difference to really matter uh, in the long run and then I get told it's like, well, you're coming from a position of white male privilege and whatever. Um, and I might, and I definitely am. But I also like, I don't know. I feel like it's, um, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to talk about this stuff. And then I feel like uh, maybe I'm getting into territory I shouldn't be talking about. Um, yeah, I don't I know. I think <laughs> we have to talk about it. I think oppression of various kinds you know, racist oppression, um, the oppression of women are, you know, the terrible effects of capitalism, along with ecocide, imperialist war, and all the other effects that it has, poverty, different things. Um, These are problems that are inherent to capitalism. And um, they can't, I think you're right, they can't be solved unless we get rid of the whole system. You know, even if it's able to shift oppression from one group to another it's still going to use it to divide us yeah um you know like they've in the past decade you know made muslims uh, a targeted group of racism yeah um so it can shift around and they might be able to integrate certain sections more, more than others and like into their project but they're always going to use oppression to divide us because they they know that if the masses unite and especially under the leadership of the working class, then their rule is, you know, their days are numbered. Hmm. So um, I think we do need to address those, all those things in the context of class struggle because that's the only path that will lead us out of all those things hmm. and, and get rid of them. Um, there's a group in Haiti that, um, that, I, that we have a relationship with. Um, mm-hmm. It's a workers' organization called Bataille and they, they had this statement um, for International Women's Day that I thought was really great because they talked about the struggle, their struggle as women workers mm-hmm. in the context of class struggle. And they, um, they said they do not unite with bourgeois women. That's, those are, you know, bourgeois, the bourgeoisie of right. any gender or any kind is their enemy. Um, but they unite in the working class and work out their differences and their divisions in the struggle against the capitalists. Um, and I thought that was a really important um, way to approach it. Yeah. I, I, because class, 
it's not just another form of oppression. It's a qualitatively different thing. It's mm-hmm. what the whole system is based on mm-hmm. because that's how they how it gets its it's its engine and its fuel is exploitation, and that's a class relationship, a relationship to production, and that's what all these other things are kind of resting on. Um, so it's an it's not just another form of it's not just another bad thing, but it's the heart of the system. And we need to go after that heart. You know, we could, well, let's make the metaphor a car rather than a body. Yeah. And say <laughs> that we have to crack the engine rather than just shoot out the tires. Yes, you know? that's a great analogy, yeah. Because I feel like um, a lot of the activist groups now have, like, obviously good intentions and uh, there's a lot of good stuff behind it. But, yeah, you are, like, shooting out the tires and then hoping to stop the car and it's like they're just going to change the tires eventually, and they'll be back on yeah, the road. Um, and I, I think, exactly. yeah, I, I think, uh, it, but yeah, it does need to be resisted. I'm not saying that we yeah. need to resist all these things, right? But we need to understand what it's going to take to actually get rid of them. And I think it's good that you brought like feminism, and also as a dude and as a white dude, it's like I, you know, I got to pick my spots where I talk about feminism. But like I. Uh, I do. I don't like because there's sort of this idea now, or it's been. I mean, it's been co-opted completely. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff on the internet going around about like you know uh, a lot of like uh, feminism stuff, and some of it's good and uh-huh. stuff. But it's all it's always within the context of like capitalism, or it's never about class. And there's sort of right. just like what I call I've been calling uh, free market feminism, and it's like uh-huh. I, you know I agree with equality and I agree with uh women getting a, a fair wage and paid the same as men too but I also I also think that we should be uh again just everybody should be equal and and this we need to be working on overthrowing money in the first place but so it, you get down this web where it's like hard to talk about and especially where a lot of the conversation on feminism now is about it's focused mostly on like sexuality um uh-huh. and like uh, what women wear and like uh, you, you know all all this stuff and it's those things are important to talk about but also it's sort of like shifted from I think like feminism's roots were like radical and were in line with like communism and then now it's sort of been co-opted and shifted so what the thing that they're talking about now is just uh, hey uh, women can sleep with as many dudes as they want and you know like uh, but like let's not shame them for that. Which I agree with too, but like that shouldn't be the uh-huh. focus of the movement. Like, uh, right? Yeah, those things can be absorbed into capitalism very easily. In fact, it'll create new markets. Yes, you know, yes. Um, <laughs> I call that bourgeois feminism. Yeah. Or you know, I think feminism is bourgeois feminism. I think, um, of course, we need to fight not to be oppressed as women, but mm-hmm. at the, you know that's not enough. Um, Somebody like Hillary Clinton is is my fundamental enemy. I don't consider yeah. her an ally just because she's a woman. Um, I draw my fundamental line around class divisions. I've been tweeting at Hillary and, Clinton that she's a war criminal. I wonder if she's got the message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yep, that's what she is. You know, right? For anybody to think... Hmm? Yeah, for anyone to think otherwise, it baffles me. It's like, no, she's a war criminal. Like, why Why would yeah. anyone support her? And why does she get to be, like, the voice of feminism? And also criticizing her and criticizing her. I mean, obviously, there's plenty of people who criticize her uh, because she is a woman and they are, uh, you know, from the right wing and they're usually fascists. 
But sure. th- that does happen. But there's a distinguish. Uh, you got to distinguish that sort of garbage criticism, which is just uh, evil. And then criticism that's like even-handed and being like, no, look what she actually did. She's not a good person, and she's not what feminism should be. And if you're going to make her like the pinnacle of feminism, you're going down a bad path. Like you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, she's <laughs> more or less a monster. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have to be looking at all these um, different issues through a class lens and mm. from the interests of the working class instead of keeping it focused. They want us to focus on the superficial aspects of everything you know what people wear or how people behave you know different um things that can be easily recuperated by capital Mm -hmm. like um you know gay rights has largely been absorbed into capital now and now it's a marketing thing like it's a demographic that they can market to oh man it's no longer I saw this commercial, sorry to get you off, but I did, I saw this commercial on TV and I almost like, I almost threw my TV out the window. It was, uh, it was for, it was for a bank. It was for like Wells Fargo or something. I'm going to, I'm going to edit out their name, so I don't want to give them any publicity. Uh, it was for a bank and it was like, um, a lesbian couple and not only a lesbian couple, but they were like deaf, I believe, because they were like signing to each other and then they go, um, and then you're like, oh, they're lesbians, cool, and they're signing, so they're deaf. And then they go and they adopt uh, a deaf girl, like a child together. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, is there a better like symbol than a commercial, like a bank commercial co-opting your movement? They're going for like the trifecta there. They're trying to appeal, like, like they, they have lesbians in their commercial, they have deaf people in their commercial, they have gay adoption in their commercial for a bank. And it's like... You could view that as, I think a lot of people view that sort of as like a sign of the times. It's like, oh, we're making strides as society because look, before these people would have been excluded from these commercials. And it's like, yeah, they would have been. And uh, it's good that they're, uh, that like different lifestyles, however you want to call it, are being ex- more widely accepted. But like in a bank commercial, <laughs> like banks are evil. Like why is this now the point of your movie? Like I feel like the media has co-opted so much stuff that we're sort of marking, like, movements in society, like, so as, as things are, are, so to speak, progress, uh, we mark that by the appearance of certain types in the media rather than actual, or, uh, you know, like, progress, like, equality. Like, uh, I think, like, given a long enough time, like, you might even have, like, a breakdown, like, say, over if the Earth can survive another 2,000 years or something. If we keep capitalism in, in place, uh, you might have, like, a more, like, diverse ruling class. But you're still going to have that class society. So maybe you get equality, but you get a stratified classist equality. Does that make sense? To, I don't know if I explained that. Yeah, that's why clearly. I do think we have to move beyond the concept of equality and... Um and talk about class emancipation uh, because equality can be achieved under capitalism and it mm-hmm. just because it, it hasn't yet for everybody it doesn't mean it can't be mm-hmm. um, and that's still in the framework of exploitation and so our goal I mean we can fight for reforms without being reformist I think mm-hmm. we can fight for our rights our, our democratic rights as they exist um, but if we just leave it at that, then 
new problems are still going to be arising, you know, different, you know, exploitation will still be there. The accumulation of capital will still be there. Ecocide will still be there. So we have to move beyond the concept of equality under capitalism and really think about emancipation from capitalism. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we've been talking now about for our oh, 15 minute hour 15 um, I think this is that's probably a good note to uh, leave it off on uh, okay. hit all my checks hit, oops hit all my check marks I'll edit this rambling part out uh, <laughs> I like editing I'll take out all the uh, ums that I do I, I go back to listen and listen to these and I hear myself go um rom 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 and it drives me insane and I, I spend about like an hour or two just editing out my ums so I sound like a, a reasonably uh, intelligible person. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I will if you want. Yeah, I'll, I'll go through and uh, yeah. I'll try. I'll clean up the audio as much as possible. I won't edit what you say, but I'll, I might clean up some spots just to uh, make the conversation flow or sound better to the listener uh, for the, the for the people listening at the FBI, um, <laughs> <laughs> whoever monitors my podcast. Um, is there anything else you'd like to um, sort of? I guess. Oh, the one last question I'd say. So, like. If somebody's listening to this podcast and they, they heard us talking and then we really struck a chord and they want to do something, um, what do you suggest, like, outside of, like, okay, they get some books and they start reading, um, what, what do you suggest them start doing on, like, an organizational level? Is there someone that you would, uh, a group or a place where they can go and what, what can they do to, like, start organizing? Well, um... I think it really is important to start organizing and not just have a study group because mm. you can be studying political theory, but for what? It has to be used to actually do what it's supposed to do. Mm. So um, if you don't see a group around you that you fully agree with, then starting one, um, it starts with two people having a conversation and opening up the issues and opening that door to organizing and trying to figure out what to do together. Um, if you really agree with um, my politics, you know, I invite anybody to get in touch with me and I will try to hook them into some kind of organizing project um, that I'm involved with or that I support. Um, but the important thing is to start figuring it out through practice. You know, theory and practice work together and practice is the primary thing of those two. So we can't get good at building a mass movement or, you know, working for revolution unless we're out there actually practicing. Um, it's like playing a guitar, you know, you can't mm. pick it up and just play a song. You have to actually spend a lot of time learning how to do it. And the same thing is, is for organizing. Cool. And is it cool if we uh, post your email address if people want to get in contact with you? Yeah. Or actually, your website? I, I can link to your website or Twitter or whatever you want. And uh... Yeah, my website and also um, the organization mm -hmm. um, that I belong to posts its literature on a site uh, called Collection in it, which I'll send you the email, the website address of. Okay. And if you could post that, um, yeah, that would be great for further reading. Alright, that about does it for this week, months, years episode of Democracy Hal. 
maybe the last democracy however thanks for listening thanks to my guest stephanie mcmillan uh, cartoonist author activist organizer for revolution check her out on uh, her website is uh, stephaniemcmillan.org that's stephanie s-t-p-h-a-n-i-e mcmillan m-c-m-i-l-l-a-n dot o-r-g uh, check out uh, if you want to look at see the organization that she's with check out their theoretical framework and the applications uh, the- theoretical framework for uh, organizing to smash the bourgeoisie uh, it's a collection in it, and that's spelled uh, K O L E K S Y O N hyphen I N is in November I P is in Proletariat Revolution dot org. Collection in it. I'll post it up. Uh, we'll post it at crabdiving dot uh, so you can click on the link. Uh, if you're interested in your local to the LA area, check out the uh, Serve the People. Um, we do food distribution in Echo Park and in. Uh, Hollenbeck Park in uh, Boyle Heights. Uh, if you have anything that could be useful, food, uh, money, uh, clothing, material things, if you have so many, any ideas or you're part of the communities and you want to get involved uh, and you want to start building autonomous communities away from capitalism, check it out. Uh, serve the people LA. Serve the people LA.org. Alright, that's going to do it for the podcast. Thanks to Crap Diving Network. I will be back sometime later maybe i don't know all right thanks for listening bye